Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread, episode number 197 to be exact. I have to be honest, I'm not sure that back in February of 2021, I was thinking that 197 episodes later, I'd still be going. But here we are, closing in on 35,000 downloads and 200 episodes. And for those of you who have made it this far with me, man, thank you for joining me. Thank you for passing the podcast on to others. Thank you for diving into God's Word with me. Thank you for believing with me that we need more than bread to live a life that thrives. We need to have our hearts and our minds and our souls saturated by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, before we dive back into Paul's epistle of joy, let me give you a a public service reminder. I, I try to make these episodes fairly timeless so that you can invite someone to go through the Gospel of John with you a, a few years from now and still find the 20-plus episodes on John helpful. But but having said that, I'm going to take most of the month of December to do an Advent series of of episodes. Why am I telling you this now? Well, just in case you aren't caught up in a day-to-day routine and you're listening to this episode near the end of November, you might consider pressing pause on Philippians and skipping over to the Advent Christmas series. For those of you who are caught up and listening day by day, I'll start the Advent pause the, the first full week of December, so I think that's the third. So anyway, back to Philippians. We're still in chapter 1. Let me read again Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And and it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I, I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Robert Fulgham tells the story of a wedding he officiated. It was a very formal wedding with a very undignified, unexpected moment, an unexpected moment that could have been a great barrier to joy. Now, the central character in this wedding was, of course, the mother of the bride, the MOB, (laughs) usually a polite, reasonable, and sane being. The mother was mentally unhinged by the announcement of her daughter's wedding. She, She wasn't unhappy. She was overcome with joy and just about succeeded in overcoming everybody else with her joy and her planning. It wasn't long before the father of the bride began to pray for an elopement (laughs) with seven months to to work. No detail was left to chance or unexpected human error. Everything had to be perfect for this joyous occasion. Robert met with the bride and the groom about three times. The mother of the bride was in his office more than the cleaning lady. She she recruited an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble. She registered the bride for wedding gifts in stores from New York to Atlanta. Bridesmaids' dresses made to order, tuxedos for the groom and his men were bought, not rented, and the engagement ring, this is great, was returned to the jeweler for a larger stone, quietly subsidized by, of course, the mother of the bride. The final hour came, guests in formal attire packed the church, the orchestra gushed great music, and the elegant, in-control mother of the bride glided down the aisle for her mere performance. She'd done it. Right, Everything had been accounted for. Everything was perfect. She glowed, beamed, smiled, and sighed. The music softened, and nine 
count them, nine chiffon-draped bridesmaids walk down the long aisle. And finally, oh so finally, the wedding march thundered. Here comes the bride, preceded by four enthusiastic mini-princesses chucking flower petals and two little ring bearers, one for each ring. The congregation rose and turned in anticipation. Ah, the bride. She'd been dressed for hours, maybe days. <laughs> no adrenaline was left in her body. Left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church while the march of the maidens went on and on and on, she walked along the tables bearing gourmet goodies and absent-mindedly sampled first the yellow, pink, and green mints, and then she picked through the silver bowls of mixed nuts and ate the pecans, followed by a cheese ball and a deuce of olives and a handful of glass glazed almonds and, and a little sausage with a frilly toothpick stuck in it, a couple of shrimps blanketed in bacon and a cracker piled with liver pate. To wash this all down, a glass of maybe two of pink champagne. Her father gave it to her to calm her nerves. If you would have been there, what you would have noticed as the bride stood in the doorway, ready to come down the aisle, was not her beautiful white wedding dress, but her pale white face. From what was coming down the aisle, Fulgham writes, was a living grenade with a pin pulled out. <laughs> Fulgham writes, the bride threw up just as she walked by her mother. And by threw up, I don't mean a polite little lady like Erp into her handkerchief. She puked. <laughs> There's no nice word for it. I mean, she hosed the front of the church, hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and me, Fulgram says. We can be sure of the details. It's all on videotape. Three cameras worth. The mother of the bride had left nothing to chance. With the last of her dignity covering her dress, the bride went limp in her father's arms. The groom sat down on the floor where he had been standing, too stunned to function. <laughs> Groomsmen rushed Heroically, flower girls made faces, bridesmaids sobbed, people with weak stomachs headed for the exits. And our main character, the mother of the bride, she fainted. <laughs> Looking at the videos later, in the midst of the cast, only two people were seen smiling the mother of the groom and the father of the bride. <laughs> at least two people were finding joy. But what do you do when you're hit by those unexpected moments? What do you do when unexpected moments lead to circumstances that seem to be a barrier to joy? Not just an event, but in a season of life. You know, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi has power because his words of joy are the words of someone who has experienced unexpected barriers to joy. His life was full of the circumstances that, that tend to discourage and depress us. I mean, just read his list in 2 Corinthians 11. We've mentioned it before. I've, I've been put in jail more often, whipped times without number, faced death again and again five different times. The Jews gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Three times I was shipwrecked. And on and on and on he goes. And, and that wasn't all. He suffered long-term from an ailment so severe he called it a thorn in his flesh. And every time he asked God to remove it, God said no. And now he's writing, most likely from a prison in Rome, awaiting a trial that could lead to his execution. What are your unexpected barriers to extreme, overflowing, amazing joy? Health problems? Bitterness, stress, betrayal in a relationship, fear, worry, consequences of sin, something somebody did to you? 
Can we find amazing overflowing joy in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the barriers? Well, Paul was a man who went through challenging times, times that tested his faith, times of suffering, physical disease, emotional stress, changing times when the world was being turned upside down. And yet, if you read his story thoroughly, you see that he was a man who survived and thrived with joy, with joy, with joy, great joy. Paul lived a life of authentic significance and left a lasting mark in the world with joy. He was a guy who could make a call to joy from an unexpected prison. Paul found amazing, overflowing joy in the midst of unexpected obstacles, barriers. I mean, just take a brief peek at how the theme of joy surfaces time and time again in Paul's letters. In Philippians 1, 3 through 5, we've read this. He said, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I always pray for you and I make my request with a heart full of joy because you've been partners in spreading the good news about Christ. When Paul thought of and prayed for the people of Philippi, he was filled with joy. You know what? Life is too short to not enjoy the people in your life. If you don't learn to enjoy the people God has placed around you in your life, you're going to be miserable. Paul found joy in people. And then in verses 17 through 18, we read, we will read those those others who do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. They're doing it to make it harder for me, he says. But whether or not their motives are pure, the fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached. So I rejoice and I'll continue to rejoice. Even when people were trying to harm him, make life more difficult for him, Paul found, found joy. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, we're going to read, But even if my life is to be poured out like a drink offering to complete the sacrifice of your faithful service. In other words, even if I am to die for you, I rejoice. I want to share my joy with all of you. And you should be happy about this and rejoice with me. See, when Paul thought about dying, execution, he still had joy. And he wanted others to be joyful too. I think he understood that God did not consider it Such a bad thing if Paul were to die and go to be with him. In chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, Whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you joy. I never get tired of telling you this. And then his words in chapter 4, Always be full of the joy of the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. When, When he was drawing his letter to a close, he came back to that same message of joy. And no matter what kind of joy. And when when Paul began to follow Jesus, it seems like everything went downhill except for his joy. How did he do that? I'm I'm not sure there's only one thing, but I think a main truth, maybe the main truth is this. Overflowing joy begins with an uncommon confidence in God. I mean, think about it. Here's Paul sitting in a jail cell, chained to a Roman guard. A lot of time has passed since Philippi, but but he never forgot how that church at Philippi got started. He never forgot the promptings to change his travel plans, the the prompting to go by the river. He never forgot the conversion of Lydia, the wealthy woman, or or the healing of the demon-possessed girl, or the earthquake prison, or the jailer's conversion. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter to Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of our partnership, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, one way of putting it is God's not a quitter and he can't be stopped. 
God finishes what he starts. He never makes a commitment that he can't or won't keep. He's he's faithful. And I know some of you have had people quit on you, give up on you. Maybe a spouse or a friend or a boss or a teammate or a pastor, a leader, a coach. Maybe a parent or a son or daughter. Loyalty and commitment. And they're not always easy to find. But Paul is reminding the church at Philippi, and he's reminding us that God is fundamentally different and far superior to us. God redefines commitment. He redefines loyalty. Whatever he starts, he finishes. God's not a quitter, and he can't be stopped. He's a promise keeper. And and not only is he loyal, he's able. Not only does he want to finish what he starts, he can finish what he starts. I mean, sometimes we want to keep our commitments. We want to finish what we start, but we just don't have the resources or, or the ability, right? God, God is able. Paul had developed an uncommon confidence in a commitment-keeping God. God will finish what he started. God will finish what he started at Calvary, at our church. Leaders might fail you. Circumstances may go against you. People reject you, but be confident in this. What God started, he'll finish. He's not a quitter, and he can't be stopped. Jesus will finish what he started in his church. Because it was conceived and birthed by him, built and equipped by him, we can rest assured that what God has started, he's going to finish. As much junk and mess as I see in the American church today, I still have hope. I have deep, great hope. Why do I have hope? Not because of us. I have hope because Jesus will finish what he started. And with all my heart, I believe he's not finished with us yet. He has hopes and dreams and plans that have not yet been accomplished. Jesus is not finished building his church. But it's not just the church. I think you can apply this promise in a lot of different ways. For example, in the lives of your neighbors or coworkers or or friends or classmates who do not yet know Jesus, God is not a quitter and he can't be stopped. Maybe you've just started your your spiritual adventure. You consider yourself a seeker. Whether you realize it or not, there's a reason you began seeking, a reason why you're listening right now, a reason why you've begun investigating Jesus. The reason is that God has started something in your life. And that goes the same for those of us who have been following God for longer times with thousands of people that God could have begun a work in. He chose you. He chose you. If you're listening to me, he chose you. The Spirit of God showed up at your life with work gloves, a tool belt, and a plan to transform your life. I mean, just let that soak in for a moment. God is at work in your life. He started. He started. And when he starts, you can be assured he will finish well. Really, the only question is, will you cooperate with the work that God has begun in your life? And the sooner you respond, the sooner you'll find joy, the kind of amazing, overflowing joy that can bring a song to your heart, no matter what prison you find yourself in. But I can guarantee you, if you don't respond, he's not going to give up. You may quit on God. You may quit on God, but he's not going to quit on you. He's going to keep working until you find joy. Listen to me. If if you're listening to this podcast, God is doing a work in you and he's going to finish what he starts. I know sometimes churches do a not so really good work in people's lives and we call it God. Sometimes we turn joyful people into long-faced cynics, skeptics. But the work God is doing is a good work. God is in the process of making you more like Jesus. That's what he says in Romans 8. He's in the process of making us a far more loving and a far more joyful people than we've ever been. 
you know, one of my great privileges is to be able to catch a few glimpses of that transformation from stories that some of you share with me. A number of you have shared with me in just the last few months the, the ability to forgive a brother, a newfound love for a husband, overcoming anger, a renewed call to love your neighbors, a closer walk with God than you've experienced in your whole life. And, and listen, God will not stop. That's good news, isn't it? For those times when I fail, for those times when I think, man, now it's over, God won't want me back. He's not finished. (laughs) Let me take you back to that wedding. The bride was consoled, cleaned up, and fitted out with a bridesmaid dress and hugged and kissed a lot by the revived groom. She'll always love him for that, Fulgham writes. When he said for better or for worse, he meant it. The cast was reassembled and a single flute played a quiet song. The words were spoken The vows were taken. The deed was done. Everybody cried like people are supposed to at weddings, mostly because the groom held the bride in his arms through the whole ceremony. No groom ever kissed a bride more tenderly than he. On the 10th anniversary of the wedding, a party was held. Three TV sets were brought in, a feast was laid, and the best friends were invited. Remember, three video cameras capturing just about everything. And all three perspectives, all three recordings were shown at this 10-year anniversary. It was hilarious, especially with the running commentary and the stop-action stuff that's a little bit gross when seen one frame at a time. The part that got the cheers and the toasts the most was when the camera focused on the grin of the father of the bride as he contemplates the mother of the bride as she's being revived. You know why this part is the best part? Not because of the laughter of the party, but because Because of the infamous mother of the bride, she was the one who organized the party. She not only forgave her husband and everybody else for their part in the food tragedy, she forgave herself, and nobody laughed harder at the film than she did. Now, why could they rejoice when everything went horribly, horribly wrong? How could they possibly find joy after such an unexpected barrier to joy? Because in spite of all the mess... The groom still got the bride. And after everything is said and done at a wedding, that's all that really matters, isn't it? Remember back in Ephesians, Paul called the church the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Listen, joy is possible even in a desperately pain-filled world because the end of our story is that the groom gets the bride. And then God will dance with his people. And his people will forever be filled with overflowing joy. Let me pray for you. God, I just pray for each and every person listening. I know our rates of joy, our levels of joy are probably different. And too often we allow our circumstances to determine our joy. When when you said, Jesus, that joy is a gift that you've given to us, and, and when Paul's example shows us that we can live a life of joy, even in the midst of suffering, God, I pray that you would help us to choose joy. I pray that you would help us to open our hearts to receive the joy that you have given to us. God, I pray that your people would not be joyless. I pray that we would look forward and see that the best is yet to come, that in the end, all that really matters is that the bride gets the groom. The groom gets the bride. Father, would you open up our hearts by your spirit of joy? Would you breathe joy into the life of each and every person listening, regardless of their circumstances? God, would there be just this sense of joy overflowing them? ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.